0: We're in a period before we start Matthew where there's a few messages that Pastor Corey and I thought would be helpful to preach to the church, and then we have a couple of guest speakers still coming up. We have Dr. James Renahan, I believe, next week, and then um, again in a couple of weeks after that, we have the marriage conference, and then um, Stuart Scott is going to deliver the message on the Sunday morning after the marriage conference, and Lord willing, soon after that, we'll, we'll pick up in the Gospel of Matthew and probably be there for if we, if we go really fast, probably somewhere between two and three years, it could, be, it could be longer than that. Pastor Corey and I need to get together and do a little more formal breakout of the, of the text over that time. So you guys have probably heard the saying that goes something like this. In this world, nothing is certain except for death and taxes. It probably wouldn't take us very long to start meditating as Christians and recognize hey, there's at least one thing we could add to that, right? We could add sin, that you know this, this side of glory, that that's something that's going to be um, a constant companion for us until Christ comes and consummates the, the new heavens and new earth. Sin is something that's always going to be here, uh, even among the people of God. And then if we've been an adult even, or at least even been a child that's kind of aware of what's going on, we recognize one thing that sin inevitably leads to is conflict with others. Sin is, or Conflict is inevitably going to impact peace in the church, in the home, in the workplace, and in our society. Being a Christian, being a part of a local church even, that doesn't, completely isolate us from sin, from conflict, any more than it does from death and taxes. So in our text this afternoon, James is going to help us to see some of the origins of the the sin, the conflict that we have, particularly in the life of the local church, but in our lives individually and our families as well. And he's going to give us the remedy for that conflict. What James is going to do is he's going to help us to see how we can be peacemakers instead of being peace breakers. What we're going to see is it's going to be a humbling answer for all of us because that answer, that explanation is not going to find itself outside of us in someone or something else. It's not going to be in other people, how they treated us in our circumstances. The answer is actually going to be inside of us. So, Let's go ahead and read James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll be covering uh, verses 1 through 10 this afternoon. So that's obviously a big chunk of text, so we're not going to be doing a a deep dive into any particular word, any particular verse. We're going to try to get just the overall overall thought of what what we can pull out of these verses. So James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Basically, we're going to see two big points within this text this afternoon. We're going to see in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the sources of conflict that that happen within the church, within our Christian lives. We're going to see four of those particular sources here. And then in verses 5 through 10, we're going to really see either five things, or you could see it as a, as a five-part solution for conflict. It's going to be kind of the, the answer of how we become peacemakers among the people of God. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we open up his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ. We come asking word for your spirit to come and work mightily among us. Lord, I pray Lord, for grace and the preaching, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, I pray that you would grant me unction and power, Lord, I pray that you would grant me clarity of mind, Lord, and and passion in delivering this text. I pray for each one of us here that we would be humbled by your word, Lord, that we would be um, open to examining ourselves, Lord, looking, um, Lord, within us as the source of the conflict that happens in our lives, in our homes, and in this church. I pray that you would give us um, grace, that you would uh, appoint us in the direction of Christ, in repentance. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, before we dive into our text, what I want to do is give us a, a context of where we're at. This is one of the things that's hard when you preach um, you know, topical messages or one-off messages. You know, if we're preaching through Matthew, okay, you, you're following along, you have the context of the book, and that's always helpful, you know, when you, when you come to a particular verse, like, you have to understand, okay, where does this fall within the book? Where does this fall within the argument? And it, ge- it helps you be able to really understand better what the author is, is trying to communicate there. So if, if you've got your Bibles open, you can turn back a couple of pages and look at James chapter 1, verse 1. Begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So James is what is termed as a general epistle. What that means is it's not written to a specific group or specific individuals, like what we see in Paul's letters, right? Like you see Paul in what we call 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, we know exactly you know, who Paul is writing to there. Paul writes letters to Timothy, writes a letter to Titus, and so we know, okay, this is, this is the res- particular recipient of those particular letters. In this case, this is a letter written to a general audience. We see here that we have James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to Jewish Christians that are find themselves outside of Jerusalem because of the circumstances within the church and people being dispersed at that, at that time. That's why he refers to them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So history tells us that James was martyred in about 62 AD, and most evangelical scholars feel that this book was written somewhere in the mid-40 AD. So very, very early, possibly one of the earliest books um, that we have in the New Testament scriptures. So that kind of gives us the, the big picture of this text that we thought that we're going to be looking at today. And so now let's kind of hone in and look at the, the tighter context of where we're going to come in chapter four. This is um, James chapter three. This is verses thirteen through eighteen. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For with jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is, shown in, is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, here within this context, one of the things we see is that James is really addressing particular sins within the local church. So that's that's kind of our first and immediate application, but we're going to see principles in this text that we can draw out and make application very easily. It's a pretty one-to-one application of you know, relationships in our home, relationships in the workplace, basically any, any sort of human relationship we can have, we, we can take these principles that, that are found within the church and apply those. And so, if we look backward further, what we'd see previously in chapter 3, James had given some exhortations on the dangers of the tongue. Many of you are probably familiar with With those texts. And what we see here, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, James provides the solution for us, following the wisdom from above rather than wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So, what James is telling us is when a person is guided by wisdom that's worldly, fleshly, and satanic, it's certainly going to lead to problems, right? It's going to lead to issues of the tongue and it's going to lead to conflict with others. Whereas, Following the wisdom from above, that's the the path to having peace. Peace in the church, peace in the home. And so, when you're jealous and ambitious for self, rather than jealous and ambitious for God, fights and quarrels are going to be the inevitable result. And so, now... That that kind of frames us as we're going to walk into chapter 4. It's where we're at within this epistle of James. So now we're going to look in verses 1 through 4. More specifically at what James lays out as the sources for conflict. Here he begins. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What is James assuming here? He's assuming Fights and quarrels are going to happen, right, even among God's people. So it's not something that, oh, this is just for those Christians back in the first century, right? This is, is, you know, for 2,000 years ago. Right? If you've been a Christian any length of time, been in a church for any length of time, you recognize that's not the case. You know, unfortunately, we still live in this sin-cursed world where there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict in the church. There's going to be conflict you know, in the home with friends, with coworkers. All those sorts of environments are going to provide places for conflict to happen. So it's going to be a reality for us, even here at Grace Life. So one way to, to maybe a little bit better see what James is talking about here when he's talking about Quarrels and fights uh, might be to, to see it this way. A quarrel would be more like a war. Like if we're thinking in a, in a, in a military type context, a quarrel is going to be more like a war. It's going to be something that's a more prolonged hostility. And then when, when the word for a fight is going to be more like a battle sort of a one-off encounter that happens. And so we recognize we've all had you know, conflict that fits in both of those categories, right? It might be something that's just this thing that continues on for, for a long period of time, or maybe it's just this one-off you know, issue where you kind of got crossways with somebody. And so we recognize both of those issues, and we recognize in both of those cases, one of the things that can happen is, hey, there's this conflict that happens, whether it's ongoing or whether it's a one-off thing, and for one of the parties, maybe it wasn't that big a deal, or maybe it's something that was a big deal, and we're just trying to forget about it. We're just going to, hey, I'm going to overlook this, I'm going to forget about this, but the other person is still over here, you know, harboring bitterness and resentment and anger, and if we're attuned to anything at all, we probably should pick up on that reality, right? And so, in that case, one, one side might perceive that there's peace, but we recognize it's not really peace at all, or we could call it even a false peace, and so... This deals with a wide range of the types of conflict and results that we would have. And so when James asked that question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What's going to be maybe the first reply that we would have in that response? It's probably going to be something like this. It was this other person. what, What causes fights and quarrels? Well, it's that person over there right? That's what causes fights and quarrels. If they would just do what I want them to do, well, we wouldn't have any problems, right? There wouldn't be any fights. There wouldn't be any quarrels. The reality is that blame shifting goes all the way back to the garden, right? We see this in the fall. We see God coming to Adam and asking what happens. He says, well, is this woman that you gave to me, God, she's the one that did that, right? So immediately, you know, we see with sin, hey, we're blaming God, we're blaming other people. That's just the tendency Of what happens we're seeking to pass the buck and so we can think hey it was this person or this group maybe it was the circumstance that I found myself in man I just couldn't have responded any other way maybe it was you know the circumstances man I was just I had such a long day I was so tired right it's only natural that I would respond in such a way is that today one of the popular words that's out there is when you get hangry Right, it's just been a little bit too long since you've eaten. The blood sugar drops, right? And you know, in a sense, that's probably a little bit medically accurate that that happens, right? But we just use that as an excuse, right, for for, for sin, for conflict. Oh, I just couldn't have responded, you know, any other way than that. What does James say? James says Wr- wrong. None of those things. That's not the ultimate problem here. He says, the reason for fights and quarrels is not because of these things outside of you, but it's because of the things inside of you. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So there we see the first source of conflict in this, in this text. It's going to be lustful desires. The word there in the ESV rendered passions, it's the word I mean, the Greek from which we get the word hedonism. You know, this, this, this total drivenness to self. And so James here is not just talking about the pleasure or the gratification. You know, at the end of this line, he's talking about the, the craving, the desire for that. You know, that, that, that begins to lead you down this path. So we know, as Christians, and we, we talk about this um, quite often here, there's this, this ultimate true reality that in Christ... What are some things that are true of us? We're new creations. New desires. We've been given new hearts. We actually love God's Word. We want to follow God's Word. Not because that's how we be, become made right with Him, but it's because we have been made right with Him. We've been reconciled with Him. So now we actually, out of a heart of love, desire to follow and obey what He's commanded. He's taken out our heart of stone, replaced it with the heart of flesh, put His Spirit within us. right? All those things are true. We know it's true that in Christ, the old man has been nailed to the cross, been crucified. We talked about this in Galatians, for example, in this analogy where, yes, the old man has been nailed to the cross, been crucified, but that, that old man is not totally dead, this side of glory. right? What happens is that old man is seeking to come down off the cross with with the help of the devil, the help of the world, right? Trying to come down off that cross. Aided and abetted by the world and the devil. And what happens is when we start making the pleasure of the world our aim, it's as if we ourselves are pulling those nails out and helping the old man, helping the flesh down off of that cross as we coddle those desires, rather than mortifying them, rather than putting them to death, they take hold, and what happens is, these desires are manifested then into action. Verse 2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So there we see, there's this direct line, right? You're you're desiring, you don't get it, so what happens is, hey, you, you murder. And then, you, you're coveting, you're desiring this thing, but you can't get it. So what happens is you fight and you quarrel. So here we see the second source of conflict in our text being sinful actions. So what James is helping us to see is that unaddressed, those sinful desires that we have, they're going to manifest themselves unavoidably into sin being outworked within our lives. So if we dismiss or excuse those sinful desires if we if we dismiss this this battle that's going on with the flesh, the world, and the devil. Well, the fight's still continuing, right? It would be like if, if you're in a military conflict, you know, and the enemy's lining up against you and you're just, oh no, there's no enemy there. There's no fight going on. Well what's gonna happen? Right? Hey, they're still coming at you. No matter what you think, that, that enemy is still coming. So hey, the flesh, the world, and the devil, the, the, the war is on. Whether you want to recognize it or not. There's, a, there's a, a spiritual warfare that's happening. So here in this text, I don't believe that James is saying you know, within these Christians that there was actually murder happening. That they were literally guilty of murder. I think here he's actually using this murder figuratively to highlight the seriousness of sin that can manifest and happen in the church. I think what he's trying to help us to see is this necessity to nip those sinful desires in the bud before they flower and bloom into this outward manifestation of sin. And then, often what happens is when we give in to these sinful desires resulting in sinful actions, what happens is we don't even ask God for help as a part of this process. Verse 2, James says you do not have because you do not ask. We see in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, Jesus directly addresses this issue. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. So failure to ask results in a failure to receive. But, it may be that we're asking, but we're just not asking rightly. James continues, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So that's the, swords, the third source of conflict that we see. Either a lack of prayer or self-centered, selfish prayer. So we see here that the cause of our failure for not receiving is, is not a failure on God's part, it's a failure on our part. We're either not asking or we're asking wrongly to spend it on our sinful passions. So either knowingly or unknowingly, what we're doing in these situations is we're actually asking God for help in fulfilling our sinful desires, right? When we're in a conflict, we kind of think, hey, the thing that would glorify God most is for me to win this conflict, (laughs) Right? And that's how we act, even if we, we, we theologically know well enough not to come out and say that. But that's really how we act, and maybe even how we pray. And so, we see here that our prayers have to be guided and constrained by the will of God. This is what Jesus means when he says in John fourteen fourteen, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is not some kind of magic incantation just to, Pray whatever you want and just tack Jesus' name on the end of it, and boom, you've got it, right? That, that's, that's some thinking within the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, right? But what, what it means to pray according to Jesus' name is to pray according to his person, pray according to his character, which is, is in, in perfect alignment with Scripture, right? And so, hey, if we want to pray in Jesus' name, we're going to be praying according to this right here. So, here we have this is a promise made to spirit-filled believers who are striving to walk in obedience to God's law word. Spurgeon said this, he says, There are some of God's children who have little power with him in prayer, some who walk so disorderly that since they do not listen to God's words, he will not listen to theirs. Yet he will give them necessaries, as you give even to your naughty and disobedient children. But he will not give them the luxury of prevailing prayer, and that full fellowship with him when he comes through abiding in him. Such luxuries he saves for his obedient children who are filled with the Spirit. So, so often when we pray in those circumstances, we pray with a desire, whether vocalized or not, into moving God's will into what we want, not in conforming our will to God, right? You you see that that huge shift and it may be subtle even in, in in the particular words that we're praying. So what happens is once we fall into this pattern of giving in to sinful desires resulting in sinful actions and then resulting in non-existent or selfish prayers, we tend not to want to be around other Christians who are actually going to call us on the carpet, actually going to exhort us. They're going to love us enough to to, to to confront us with the truth in our sin. And so, that's why for years at Grace Life, that's why for Pastor Corey and I, we, we talk so much about faithfulness and attendance on the Lord's Day. And it's not that, man, there's... We both got kids. We we recognize, man, there's sickness that happens. I mean, like just today, hey, you guys saw in the signal group, there's multiple families in the church that have, you know, flu and sickness and all kinds of things going around. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about, hey, a a intentional neglect of gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day, right? What what happens in those cases is that that's the first sign of a sick sheep. That's the first sign of a Christian that's got some problems going on, right? I mean, if you've been at the church any length of time, you've seen that time and time again. You know, you, you see a brother or sister, you see a family kind of drawing back, fading away. So often it's because there's things going on, you know, in, in the lives of the couple of one of the individuals that man, they just don't want to be called out on. They don't want to have addressed in the church. And so that's why it, it's so important to remain faithful in fellowship, not just you know, showing up for the service time, hey, hurrying your way out the door, never actually engaging in people's lives, but actually being involved in each other's lives enough to where people know what's going on with you, know when these patterns start to happen in your life, these sinful desires manifesting in sinful actions, manifesting in, hey, a change in what's going on, a change in the people that you're wanting to be around. And so that's what happens is that we tend to gravitate toward friends that are going to excuse our sin and and soothe our consciences. And so that's the fourth source of conflict that we have here is worldly friends is how I'm describing it. So what's going to happen is we're going to be around people that will say things like this, don't you know that all Christians sin, right? I mean, That's a true spiritual reality, right? But when we use that as an excuse to continue on in sin, hey, we are in sin ourselves of abiding ungodliness, right? Or things like, man, don't you know that the Bible says not to judge others? That's kind of the big one today. Or, you know, people will say, well, at least you're not doing, you know, that sin over there or, or this sin over here, right? The sin you're doing, it's not so bad. You know, I, I, we, we should be able to overlook that thing. And of course they're going to say that because they're engaged in the very same sin that you are, right? They, you know, that those sins, the sins that we like, those sins are not a big deal. Yeah, we can make a big deal out of other people's sins that they struggle with. And so I'll say this, that if you have supposedly Christian friends that see you in sin. They, they know that it's happening. But they're not opening their mouths to actually address it and to say anything. That is not loving to you. And what you need to do is you need to go find a different group of friends. Those are not friends that love you. Those are friends that love their sin. They love themselves. And basically they're using you as a part of that process. So let's see in verse 4 how seriously James takes this. It says, you adulterous people. So, so he's accusing people that are doing the things that we're talking about it, of, of spiritual adultery. That's how seriously James takes these things, how seriously God takes these things. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James is not mincing any words there. That's not maybe the seeker-sensitive type message that you might hear in a lot of churches today, right? I mean, James is calling it like it is. And so he's recognizing the reality that, yes, we are to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to go out and evangelize the world and call the lost world to Christ. We're not to be going out and befriending the world in that sense, letting the world then draw us back to the devil. We have to remember that there's no such thing as neutrality. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right. So we have to remember that among theology, among Doctrine, among friends. There's no such thing as things that are neutral. Those, they're either things that are for Christ, or if they're not for Him, they are inherently against Him. And so compromise and syncretism are recipes for failure. I thought this quote from Curtis Vaughn really hit the nail on the head. He said, To be a friend of the world is to value the approval of and cherish a relationship with persons and forces which are either indifferent toward or openly hostile to God. The situation is comparable to that of a wife who would cultivate friendship with a man trying to seduce her. Such a wife becomes her husband's enemies. So so grasp that illustration there, right? You're married. There's a man coming to seduce your wife. Your wife, instead of rebuking him and telling you, Cozy's up to him. Hey, we can just be friends, right? And what's happened in that case is, hey, the wife has become her husband's enemy. And so that's helping us to see when we do that very thing, we're becoming an enemy of the Most High God. So when you cultivate friendship with people that are trying to seduce you away from following Christ, you have become God's enemy. You are participating in spiritual adultery. So there we've seen in the text four sources of this conflict that happens among us. Lustful desires, sinful actions, selfish or non-existent prayers, and worldly friends. So now we're going to see where James gives us five solutions, or you could think of it as a five-part solution for this type of conflict. For the first solution going to be back in the text that we've already seen. We're going to have to get to verse 5 to see it. Remember, we we saw one of the problems is this non-existent or or self-focused prayer, right? So what would the solution be? Well, it would be God-centered prayer. God-focused prayer would be one of the solutions for conflict. I thought John Stott really summarized this well. He says, every true prayer is a variation on the theme, thy will be done. That's a really simple way to think about, okay, what is a biblical prayer? What is a God-honoring, God-centered prayer? It's one that basically has the theme, Lord, your will be done, In all these things. It doesn't mean that we don't ask for things that we perceive that we need or that our family need, but it's all within the context of God's will being done, not ultimately ours. So I'm going to read verses 5 through 10 again, and then we're just going to kind of walk through the text, and I'm going to pull out um, these four additional solutions for conflict. So verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So we see where James begins here is with the authority of the word of God, with the authority of scripture. So especially in times of difficulty, in times of conflict, we have to be committed to standing on the authority of what God's Word says, being ready to obey the things that we see there. What we're going to be tempted to do is, hey, we want to follow after what our flesh wants. We want to follow after what the devil, what the world is tempting us to believe, right? But We have, we have one standard, one filter through which we can send all that through to see if we're actually thinking rightly, So, in those circumstances, we're going to see things like this from God's word. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And we're going to think, Lord, you really mean that about this brother or sister that offended me? Yeah, it includes them as well. You're going to think, man, does that, God, are you really there talking about my spouse? who does the same thing time after time. Maybe it's this sinful thing, or maybe it's this thing that just annoys me so much. Yeah, I don't, see, don't see an exception clause in there in that text for them, right? And so, so we have to be a people committed to the truth of God's Word, overriding what our thoughts, our emotions will tell us, even in those situations of conflict and difficulty. So God demands our ultimate loyalty, and the way that we demonstrate that loyalty to Him is by following after His written word. Verse 5, this is one of those that if we were preaching through James, probably you could spend a whole message going through and trying to to discern um, the different ways that you could see this text. And one of the difficulties is trying to look at the structure to determine, okay, is James really talking about the Holy Spirit, or is he talking about the human spirit within us? And if you were to look at the ESV, it actually renders this lowercase s spirit, and then the NASB renders it capital S, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so it's one of those things that's really hard, even within conservative um, evangelical thinking to to necessarily pin down. And I don't think we have to resolve that that difficulty here to really get to the point of, of where this would end, we know from the testimony of Scripture that if we're talking about the spirit of the unregenerate man or woman, what's going to be the nature of that spirit? Right? It's going to be a spirit you know, it's driven after sin, and envy, lust, all those types of things are going to be manifest. right? But when we're born again, God changes our hearts, as we've already talked about, giving us new desires to follow after Him, placing the Holy Spirit inside of us, which that's one of the primary means that God uses to give the grace that he's talking about in verse 6, right? So no matter how we want to parse this text individually, we can see the big picture of what's being talked about here, right? That, that at the end of the day, that the means that we have of, of grace in the Christian life flow through the Holy Spirit. and So that gives us the first two solutions here for conflict that we see in this text is walking by The Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God. So walking by God's Word by the power of His Spirit. And when you hear that, that's why if you sit here today outside of Christ, there's probably a lot of conflict happening in your life. Because you can't do these things on your own. Yeah, you can slap some moralism on and, and, you know, Things can get better from time to time. But the reality is, man, you're just always going to be at odds with the people around you because you're always at odds with the most holy God. And So if that's you this afternoon, if you recognize this conflict, this battle that you're having with God, this battle that you're having, you know, maybe with people in the church, maybe with people in your home, maybe with people in your workplaces, here's the words of Jesus for you. This is Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you sit here today young person, old person, outside of Christ in a sense you could say God invites you But in another sense, you could say God commands you to come to Him. God commands you to turn from your sin. To repent of it. To trust in what Christ has done. That He came and lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. This this God's law that we're talking about, that's one of the uses of the law, to hold up like a mirror to us. Saying yes, you, you cannot do this. That's why you need this over here. That's why you need a Savior. You need what's been called an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of yourself. So if you will repent and turn from those sins and put your trust in Christ, we have the promises of Scripture, even what we heard in our Scripture reading in in 2 Corinthians, that that He became righteousness for us, right? That what happens is when, when we repent and believe the Gospel, our sin is imputed to Christ. His righteousness imputed to us. So we are reconciled to a thrice holy God. And does that mean that as a Christian, your life is going to be perfect in just a bed of roses? No! You, you recognize that. You're around a bunch of Christians here who we're just talking about how sin is a companion even for us, right? But what we have is we have a, a desire within us to obey what God has commanded. We have his spirit within us giving us help for these things. So we're striving, growing in in all those things, right? So even within our little church here, on one hand, we can say, yes, we are not without conflict that happens within this body. But we can also sing heartily the song that, that, that we sung earlier about, man, this wonderful nature of dwelling in unity with God's people. Right, where, Yes, there's conflict that happens, but, but what, what often happens and what should happen is, hey, we recognize that conflict, we're on the way to reconcile that with our brother or sister, when we meet them in the middle as they're coming to, to make that right with us. Right? That's, that's what it means to be among God's people. That's the result of being among God's people. So, for those of us that are in Christ, James helps us to see here what walking by the Spirit would look like. In verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, it's clear that we have to be a people submitted to God. We have to bow the knee to Him and bring our will under His control. We have to recognize that He is the King, and we are but His humble servants. And part and parcel of what that means of being a loyal and humble servant of God is to resist his archenemy, the devil. To take your stand against the devil and his demons. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers that, that are over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, spiritual warfare is a real thing. It's something... That's to be taken seriously by us. And so the devil has been tempting and deceiving God's people ever since the garden. And so we can't come and think that on our own that we're strong enough to, to, to win that battle. John Gill says this of this text He says, He, that being Satan, is a proud spirit and he endeavors to swell men with pride of themselves. And when he has worked, Them up to such a pitch he is master over them and can manage them as he pleases. But a poor, humble believer with whom God dwells, to whom he gives more grace, and whom comes forth not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord God, as David against Goliath, who owns his own vileness and sinfulness, and flies to the grace of God, the blood of Christ, Satan knows not what to do with him. He is puzzled, baffled, and confused, such he leaves. From such he flees. He does not like the power of prayer, nor the strength of faith, nor the sharpness of the two-edged sword, the word of God, nor the humble believer's staff bag, script and sling. James continues in verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. So we're not just called to the negative, resisting the devil. We're called to the positive, drawing near to God. We see here that in our struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're not standing alone. We're invited, we're commanded to draw near to God for help. I think for most of us in our American evangelical context, we don't really... Grasp the significance of being able to draw near to God. It's something I think that we hear that and we just take it for granted. I think if we knew our Old Testament better and remembered that what we see there is that at that time, there was one man, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, that could actually draw near to God, come into his presence in the most holy place. And at that time, He had to go through all sorts of ceremonial washings. He had to come into the presence of God with the blood of bulls, the blood of goats. in one man, one day a year out of all God's people. So we operate sort of like we inherently know this, but I'm afraid we, 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 we forget sort of the background behind this, right? The fact that, yes, now the veil has been torn that separated that most holy place, that, that, that separated you know, this, this presence of God that was there within the temple. And now, we as God's people, all of us have access to the presence of God in Christ's blood. So, I think we, we sort of get to the right answer, recognize that we can draw near to God. We kind of forget all this background and how glorious and how wonderful it is that, that, that that's a spiritual reality for us we see this in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and 20 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh so that's the reality for us as new covenant people this you know we see this at the time of the the crucifixion the veil torn from top to bottom, recognizing this is God doing this and now us being granted access to the, the holy of holies, to the most holy place, access to the very presence of God through Christ. What we see here that we think back to our Old Testament example, we had the priest, the high priest coming in, all the ceremonial cleansing and washing of the garments, all those things. So that's not, you don't see Pastor Corey and I doing that before you know, we get up here and minister to God's people. right? That, that's not something that, that is a part of, 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 of worship, the worship of God in the New Testament. But that's not to say that the worship of God doesn't now require purification still. But it's not the outward washings of hands and garments. What we see here is it's the purity of life that's required for the believer. James says, Cleanse, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So Again, James not mincing his words. Like James was the the first century Paul washer, right? I mean, man, he's calling these Christians out. Sinners, double-minded, you adulterous people. So James is not saying that we have to be sinless to approach God. If that's what James was saying, we're theologically astute enough to know that would be an impossible endeavor. Right? If that was the requirement, none of us would be able to follow that command. What James is saying is, we have to draw near to God with this sincere desire for repentance. Sin, the sincere desire to be turning away from our sin. So that's the fourth Solution for conflict that we have is repentance. So, to continue on in the lustful desires and the sinful actions and the selfish prayers and in the worldly friends that we've talked about earlier, to continue in those things and then attempt to draw near to God, that's the height of hypocrisy. It's what James called double mindedness, is to have divided loyalties. So to to be divided in that way, think about what's what's the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right? So to to be double-minded in that way is to blatantly be violating that first and great commandment that that Jesus um, exhorts us in. What James does is He calls us to quit playing around with those things and to repent. John Adam put it this way, he says, to profess to be seeking the divine forgiveness and favor while cherishing and practicing consciously, willfully, what he hates is mockery, an insult to the majesty of heaven, a profanation of the mercy seat. That's the seriousness of wanting to hold on to those sinful things, those lustful desires, those sinful actions, those selfish prayers, those worldly friends, to try to hold on to those things and draw near to God. It's a a profanation of the the grace, the mercy that God has given us in Christ. James continues in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So let's just be honest with ourselves. When we read that, isn't our first reaction, James, you're taking this whole thing pretty serious, right? I mean, that, that's, those are not things that we really hear in the church, like hear people say those things. You should be mourning and weeping more. Let that laughter over there be turned to gloom. So James, does God really want us to mourn and weep over our sin? Yeah, that's exactly what God wants. I think when we think and act. Otherwise, what it's doing is it's exposing just how low of a view of sin that we can fall into. We can think about it in this way. If, if we knew a husband and wife and we knew, and the husband has just repeatedly sinned against his wife. He's repeatedly cheated on her. How would we expect that husband to respond like to demonstrate that he's truly repentant, we would expect him to do some mourning and weeping, right? I mean, that's what we would think it should look like. But somehow for us, we, we excuse ourselves. You know, we're, we're sinning, we're committing spiritual adultery against the Most High God, but we don't think mourning and weeping is fitting for us? And again, just a point of clarity Yes, in Christ, we have been judicially forgiven. We've been declared righteous before the judgment seat of God. All our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. They've been put away from us as far as, as, far as, away, as the east is from the west. So we've been judicially forgiven, but God calls us to experience ongoing relational forgiveness. Right? If we get this wrong, hey, we, we've messed salvation up. If all of a sudden we're starting to think, hey, we're needing to do these things to, act, to actually be reconciled to God, that's, that's when we've fallen in, into works righteousness and legalism. So we have to understand that difference. Notice, in the beginning of verse 9, James says, be wretched. It's not really a word that we would probably use in that context what it means is be miserable be afflicted And so what james is saying in christ we need to recognize the heinousness of our sin we need to recognize how our sin harms our relationship with god how it's impacting others around us and we need to turn in repentance and draw near to god and again it's not that christians shouldn't be characterized as people of joy Right, it's easy to, to hear this verse, and all of a sudden you think, "Man, I have to walk around with sackcloth and ashes, and you know, be wearing black on you know, I, basically that, that that's not the lifestyle of the Christian life that we're called to." Right? In First Thessalonians 5:16, Paul says, "Rejoice always." Right, so th- so there's this reality that the Christian life should be characterized by joy, and so how do we? reconcile those things where we're here James is saying, hey, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, what James is talking about is, is in this specific situation where you've been you know, given over to sin, to spiritual adultery. Right? This is not a time for, for you know, lightheartedness, for laughter, for frivolity. This is a time for, for serious mourning and weeping and doing business with the Most High God. We've seen James point us to selfless prayers, to the listening of the Word, to the walking in the Spirit, and to repentance as solutions for a conflict. And here he ends in verse 10, With humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So, There's our fifth solution for conflict, the humbling of yourself. In times of conflict, it's really helpful to remember that you're not the center of the universe. That the fact that you're hurt, that you're offended, that that's not the cause that should demand divine justice to be rained down upon the other person on the other side of that. In our scripture reading from Second Corinthians, we heard this in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5 for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised so we tend to like that first part that one died for all we, we, We like that, that someone would die for us. But what we tend to not like as much is that because of that, therefore all have died. That we in Christ have died to self, meaning that we no longer live for self, we're no longer zealous for self, we're no longer looking out for ourself. But what are we doing? We're living for God. We're seeking to glorify Him. We're seeking to point to Him. We're seeking to fight for His glory, fight for His rights, and not our own. Most conflict happens or continues on because we're loving ourselves more than we're loving Christ, more than we're loving others. And so when we recognize that all of our needs have been met in Christ, then we're not looking to the other person, to be the one that's having to meet those needs because we recognize, man, they've already been met for us. In that case, then the love of Christ can control us. So when we recognize that what we need most is not to defend ourselves, not to fight for ourselves, but to lose sight of ourselves, to die to ourselves, to focus upon how we can love our neighbor and how we can glorify God, then we can actually come to approach conflict in a Christ-like way. That's how Christ would have approached conflict. What happens is, conflict, strife with others, it very, very often actually helps us to see shortcomings in ourselves. Which, the flesh doesn't like that so much, right? And so when we come to a conflict, what we tend to do is, hey, I'm having this disagreement. I'm going to all focus over here on what this other person, hey, they should have done this. They they shouldn't have done that. They should have said this. Whatever it is, I'm going to focus. All the focus is going to be over there. I'm not going to see kind of what the Lord wants me to be learning as a part of this process. What happens is, I'm going to focus all upon them. I'm going to scoot right on past all the things that I'm doing. And so, those are times where, again, we all theologically know, hey, God's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? We acknowledge, okay, God's working all things for our good. Somehow in the midst of conflict, it's really easy to forget that reality, right? Sometimes it's really easy to, to be focused upon, okay, what? what God most wants here is for me to win this argument, right? Rather than thinking, no, what God wants most for you here is to actually grow more like Christ, which means probably not winning that argument, but actually responding in a Christ-like way. We have to recognize that, and again, like even Pastor Corey hit on this in our time of confession, God's sovereign over everything, right? And there's a balance to that in Scripture that we have. So it's not to excuse people's sin, but we forget that, Man, those shortcomings in the brothers and sisters in the church and your spouse, God sovereignly ordained those. Even the sinful ones, those things are not, it's not a surprise to him. He didn't wake up this morning, oh wow, really? Your, your, Your friend has that? Your spouse does those things? Really? I didn't know that. No, God has sovereignly ordained those things for your good to make you more like Christ. And so when you realize that, it actually helps you respond rightly in those circumstances, looking at, man, what do I need to do different? What do I need to learn from this? Recognizing that basically what God has given you in that case is kind of like sandpaper to sort of rub off those rough, unchrist-like edges that are still floating around on you. And So when we do that, we can... Focus upon God, we can rejoice at what He's looking to accomplish in those circumstances that clearly we can't see because we're focused upon ourselves. Recognize that He's using that to expose our sin, expose those wrong desires, those wrong actions that we have in our lives. And then that lets us be able to respond in a Christ-like way and be able to, to seek to glorify God and to love that other person. Spurgeon put it this way, he said, If you exalt yourself, he, meaning God, will pull you down. If you lie down in the dust before him, he will lift you up. It's according to God's unusual way of acting to practice these reversals. That doesn't mean we humble ourselves and lay down before God and lay down before the other person, seeking to get the end that we want anyway, right, (laughs) with that goal in mind. We do that because that's what God has commanded in his providence, we recognize that, man, he, he often works in mysterious ways. And it's amazing how many times, hey, the, the tables get turned, the, reverse, the reversal happens there. Just to wrap things up. When you put two people together, whether it's in the church, in the family, in the school, in the workplace, or basically any other place, any other circumstance, for more than a few minutes, what's going to happen is one of those people is going to sin against the other one and you're going to have conflict that happens. What we've seen here is that James has told us how to avoid and how to limit that type of conflict happening in our lives, in the church, in our homes, and how to respond to it rightly when it does arise. And What we've seen is that it's not that James offers us some kind of secret conflict resolution strategy, per se. I mean, that's what we want, right, is kind of this list of five things we can say or do, and okay, that fixes our conflict, right? What we've seen is that James has given us you know, time-tested and true sin-killing strategies as how we end conflict. Right, I mean, kind of the same answers we even heard in Pastor Corey in the Confession. Right? It's amazing how many times we go back to, to God's Word, prayer, the power of the Spirit, all those things. It's amazing how many times those are, those are, the, those are the answers uh, to whatever problem that we're dealing with. And so, my hope is that we would humbly look at and respond to those areas of our lives that the Holy Spirit through James' writing, through my preaching, has exposed, and that we would truly mourn over those sins. That we would let our joy be turned to mourning. Let that laughter be turned to gloom in those things. But I recognize even now, there's a temptation to be thinking about, man, where are we going to go to eat after service? Man, on Monday I've got so many things to be doing and i'm already starting to think about how to prepare for those things right it's so easy just to move on but if the lord has convicted you over something you, you that you've heard and i love how the spirit works it's amazing how many times someone will come up and say how the lord convicted them of something it's not even something that i mentioned in my message right it's just hey the the, the spirit made application there, so that, that's one of the glorious things about preaching is ultimately it's not, it's not up on me, it's not up on Corey. You know, we're, we're trusting in the Spirit of God to work. And so, my prayer is that we would take these solutions for conflict resolution that we've seen here, and that this would be something that, that we apply these things in our lives starting today, that they would um, influence and, and impact how we deal with conflict here within the church, in our homes, within our lives individually, and in all those areas that we would be known as peacemakers and not peacebreakers. Let me pray, and then Pastor Corey is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Our great and mighty God, we come in the name of Christ. We come, first of all, recognizing that Through Him, we are at peace with You. And that influences, that impacts each and every area of our lives. It gives us, Lord, the freedom, the power to actually be at peace with one another. We have the freedom to die to self because Christ has died for us. We have the power to live for Him because He lived for us. I pray that You would help us to humble ourselves, to walk in obedience to what we've heard today, Lord. And where you've convicted us of sin, that you would help us to not move quickly from it, but to actually deal with it, to wrestle through it with you, and that you would grant us true repentance, true hope in Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.